Now, I know for some of you, if you've known me a while, this is going to come as a shock to you, but I love preaching. I know. I know. It's crazy. It's a rare gift to proclaim to the body of believers, specifically these body, this body of believers whom I love. And not only do I love you all, I actually like you too. What? <laughs> but it is so much fun and such an honor to get to proclaim the word of God every week. But one of the most important things I can do by being one of your pastors, and I say one because we got Mike, yeah, yeah, is to help you and I learn how to read the Bible for ourselves, okay? The goal is not that you would just come here, this is all the Bible you'd get, you'd leave and not put any of it into practice, but you would then know how to read the Bible on your own and that I would get to be a cheerleader for your spiritual growth as you put it into practice, But on top of even proclaiming the message, I have to admit that there is so much richness and blessing in the preparation of a sermon. Spending time diving into the text, seeing what was said and who it was said to and why it was said and what God intended for his hearers to hear, not just 2,000 years ago, but also now. This preparation, part of it is known as a hermeneutic. Anyone use that word in a sentence this week? Max. Or... or hermeneutics, which means the study of the principles and methods of interpreting the text of the Bible. And depending on what your hermeneutics are like, we can read and study Scripture very different than the person who's sitting right next to us. We can also try to get Scripture to say what we want it to say. This is known as eisegesis. I'm sure you've used that word in a sentence this week as well. It's a story that's told a professional boxer had committed to Christ and he felt it was wrong to continue hitting people. But he only knew boxing as a profession. So he sought out the counsel of one of the deacons within his church and he asked him, is it okay for me to continue to box? And the deacon responded to him and he said, I don't see why not. As the Bible says, it is better to give than to receive. Right? That's eisegesis. Eisegesis is bad, but exegesis is good. Say it with me. Eisegesis is bad. Exegesis, whoo, bless you. Exegesis is good. Exegesis is when we allow the text to say what it actually says in the context in which it is said to the people it is said to with the intent of what was written by the biographer or the writer of the text without adding our own agenda to get the text to say what we want it to say. This happens all the time, unfortunately. And often we do eisegesis when we proof text and we pull a verse, we cherry pick a verse right out of the Bible to get it to say what we want it to say. And we strip it of the authority which the word of God actually has when we read it in the context in which it's taught. I bring this up today as a warning, but also as a caution and an encouragement to all of you because for too many people, they study scripture really only because they like the good teachings of Jesus. They wanna follow Jesus as a spiritual guru, but not the Lord of their lives. I wanna encourage you to listen to the Bible, especially today, as the authority of your life. Not because it is a book written by valuable men, it is but because it's the living words of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he used messed up people like you and I to actually write these things down, but he inspired them, and we believe it is the inherent word of God. So some of you may consider yourself pretty smart. Anyone? 
No, don't raise your hand. That would be stupid. You may be knowledgeable. You may be wise. But you'll never be as wise as our God. You'll never have the wisdom of the Spirit. So please, if you're going to default to listening to something with faith, default to the Word of God rather than culture. Because culture will change tomorrow, but the Word of God will stay the same. Augustine, the theologian, once said it this way, if you believe what you like about the gospel, but reject what you do not believe, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Today, we're going to talk about an event that is talked about in all the Gospels except Luke. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke doesn't really talk about this story other than one quick sentence. But for those of you that are, want to be students of the Word, this is pretty important contextually, so take some notes. We have four different Gospel writers. They were biographers who wrote with their own emphasis specifically about Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason emphasis is so important is because details will be accentuated or left out depending on the point of view and the emphasis the writer has regarding the subject matter. We all do this when we tell a story, right? We, we leave out the stupid part where we messed up when we're telling a story. Let's just be real. And we do this when we're telling a story because we want to emphasize specific things to get the point across, so there are four gospel writers. The first one is known as Matthew. His Jewish name was Levi. Matthew was a Levite, a Jewish tax collector, who when he met and followed Jesus Christ, he left everything and he started to follow Jesus, according to Luke chapter 5. He had this huge transformation after repentance. But Matthew's upbringing of the, being a Levitical Jew, he would often emphasize the prophecies that are in the left-handed part of our Bible, the left side, the Old Testament, the dusty part for some of us. Let's be real. And he would emphasize these prophecies that Jesus came to fulfill. Matthew was a customs official. He would have to write things down very quick, so he was very skilled at shorthand, and he would often write down everything Jesus had to say verbatim. Matthew would put on display that Jesus was and is the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament was foreshadowing. Then you have Mark, who writes the shortest of the four gospel accounts. He was, his, his gospel is often known as the cliff notes. You guys still use those? No? All right, that was my generation. That's fine. <laughs> I have other references you're not going to get to. Uh, he was known as Cliff Notes or maybe even the newspaper gospel. Mark was a disciple and essentially a secretary for Peter the Apostle. Mark writes primarily with an emphasis on the servanthood of Jesus, how he would obey the Father in everything that he did. Mark had no regard for genealogy like some of the other writers didn't care about pedigree, and he focused more on what Jesus did than just who Jesus is. Third, you have Luke, the Gentile physician who was also a historian, Dr. Luke, and Luke emphasized Jesus being the Son of Man, a title that was used in the book of Daniel that was talking about the coming back of the Savior, of the Lord. And Luke would specifically emphasize Jesus' humanity and even what Jesus felt. Luke also writes another book of the Bible. Anyone? Acts. The Actions of the Apostles. It's right after John. We're not going to that next, I don't think. I want to do Hebrews, but I guess it's not just totally up to me. <laughs> kind of is. Um, but I, Luke writes this letter 
of the book of Acts of these eyewitness accounts of what the apostles did after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent a spirit. But he writes the book of Luke, hence the name. Then lastly, we have John, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the biographer who probably had the closest relationship and proximity to Jesus. John emphasized Jesus being the only son of God. Where do we hear this in the book of John? 316, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. And he communicates it through all of scripture. And again, John's emphasis is to make known that Jesus is God. So if you pulled out of John 6 for some reason, go back to John 6, verse 16. It says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. So I got really pumped to study this text. I got really pumped to spend time in it. And so I have the absolute honor of discipling a few of you. And I was sitting down with Stephen, who's running the camera right now. Everyone look back at Stephen and say, hi, Stephen. Perfect. That'll be great in the video. And I was studying this passage with Stephen, and he pointed out something that I totally missed, because I am totally fallible. He pointed out something in verse 15, which we ended last week in our sermon. Here's what it says, verse 15 of John 6. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus has the supernatural ability to turn water into wine, to heal the sick, but like the time when he overturned the tables after calling out the people that were trying to make the temple a place where, uh, basically a flea market, he got away from those people. And we see as Jesus fed, not 5,000, 5,000 men, but probably 10,000, because wherever there are men, there tend to be women. Wherever there are men and women, there tend to be kids. You guys get that, right? Don't need to do a lesson? Okay, good. And he got away from about 10,000 people who were trying by force to make him the political king. I personally picture Jesus kind of doing the Jedi mind trick again. No, you're not looking for me, and he just walks right past people. I don't know. I'll get away from the pulpit to say that. I'm not positive that that's what happened, but I think there was something supernatural about the way that he could get away from crowds. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, verse 17, where they got into the boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. All right, Uh, when we're studying scripture, it's important to understand that there is nothing written in scripture that's there by accident. So you start to notice he was going towards this lake towards Capernaum, and that it was dark, and that Jesus had not yet joined them. So John is making all of these points on purpose, and we're going to see why in a second. Jesus sends his disciples to the lake. He doesn't join them for a while because he has retreated to be away from everyone but God. For some, it could be because if Jesus had these 12 disciples with him, they'd probably make a commotion, right? They'd probably make a lot of noise, and so there's no way Jesus could get away with Peter not shutting up. But another natural or supernatural reason, depending on how you look at it, is after Jesus performs this miracle, this creative miracle of feeding the 5,000, and he took very little and he gave a ton to people, my guess is that my Lord needed rest. Jesus is 100% God. That's fact. But for you math majors, I'm sorry, for you math majors, he's also 100% man. And I know that doesn't add up. I don't get it. Ask Mike. He'll help you with it. 
but he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And my God did not wear a man mask. He was tempted, he was tired, he was tested, and he never broke free from what the Father's will was for his life, which you and I fail all the time. So we see Jesus's humanity. We see that he also needed to get with the Father. He needed to abide. He needed to remain in. He needed to be rooted in the Father as his sole source of strength. Here's a question. Do we have any extroverts in here right now? No, no, no. Real extroverts would make noise. Yeah, okay. All right. Just making sure. Okay. (laughs) Do we have any introverts in here? Okay, yeah, that's good, that's good. Here's the weird thing. I'm an extroverted introvert. Yeah. Now, I know that sounds like an oxymoron to some of you. An oxymoron's like a, Yankee, a nice Yankees fan. Okay, that's, that's, yeah. Go Boston. But see, here's the thing. I love this crowd, but I hate and detest crowds. You guys picking up what I'm putting down? I love this crowd. I love to spend time with you. But if you ask me to go save seats in a busy movie theater, I'd rather get a root canal. Can't stand it. I get so much energy from, let me look around. Yeah, from most of you. (laughs) But around 2 p.m. on a Sunday, if I have not prepared myself, I will completely shut down. Anybody? And I don't think I need a prescription. I don't think I need a different diet. I think I actually need to know and actually obey the fact that I need to get with my Lord. I need to tap into him. I need to pray. I need to meditate on his word. I need to talk with him and meditate on his goodness. The fact that he's done for me what I could not do for myself. I'll often end up on my bed, away from my kids and my wife, completely vegging, but completely unnecessarily vegging. Right, let me, we can confess, this is church, right? Like, I can be honest. I'll just watch YouTube videos of, like, different Marvel movie trailers that are coming out. I'm a total geek, just so you guys know, all right? You're all judging me. That's fine. But that's what I'll do if someone doesn't snap me out of it, if I don't get with my Lord, if I don't spend time with him. So I know what I need to do, but I also know that my default setting is to not do what I ought to do. Anybody else? So I need to be disciplined. I need to be consistently retraining myself to get with my Lord, not just for you, not just for my family or other people that might be somewhat dependent upon me, but I need to get with my Lord because it is more important to be with God than to be effective in ministry. Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, if I could do it all over again, I would have preached less and prayed more. This was a man who preached to hundreds of thousands of people before microphones were in existence. Thank you for the microphones, by the way. So generally, when we're teaching the word of God, if you're new to this church, I want you to know that we really want to teach doctrine, which means the understanding of scripture, how it's put together, and, and who God is biblically and via orthodox and things like that. But we don't want you to stay there. We want you to actually put it into practice. Because too many people say they believe something, but they don't actually put it into practice, which proves they don't actually know it. And so I rarely give you application. I rarely tell you what to do. You know why? Because if I tell you to do something and you do it, you won't necessarily grow. 
But if God tells you to do something and you put it into practice, I can guarantee you, you'll grow. And so I don't, I rarely do this, but I'm gonna give you an application that at least is for me and you take it as a takeaway if you want, but here's the application. However much or little time you spend in prayer, meditation, and study of God's word this week, increase it next week. That's it. So I don't know what your percentage was. If your percentage was zero, not a very high bar. But whatever you did this past week, if you were on your face for six hours, get to six and a half. But increase it. Verse 18. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. So Jesus has his disciples on this lake in these boats and the rabbi's not there. The person they're used to kind of looking towards, especially when tough things are happening, is not with them. The boat's getting tossed here and fro. But there were many fishermen amongst this group of people. So I don't think that they were totally lost in what to do. But this situation, according to one of the other gospel writers, it says that it was orchestrated by Jesus who told them to get into the boat. Thanks, Jesus. You ever get put into a situation that you know the Lord told you to do, and then you're in it, and you're like, thanks, Jesus. We can say it together. Thanks, Jesus. Verse 19. When they had rowed, remember, nothing is not supposed to be in here that's in here. When they had rowed about three or four miles. Well, was it three or was it four? Well, if it was four, it was definitely three. Some of you will get that later. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. So they're out in this boat. And John doesn't seem to say that they were afraid of the wind or the waves he seems to imply that they were afraid of Jesus. Who's not really doing what most people would do in the middle of a lake. So why would Jesus do this? I'd contend that Jesus doesn't just have control over the seas and the wind, but he actually has control over gravity and physics. That's my God. The disciples had just experienced this incredibly creative Miracle not too long before this, where Jesus fed the 5,000 plus people out of a Jewish Happy Meal, right? Very few, very little food. And he feeds all of these people. And now you have King Jesus King walking on water, exposing and emphasizing that he can do what you cannot do. But here's the thing some of us take this miracle for granted. We think, oh, yeah, Jesus walked on water. Like that's normal. It's not normal, church. If you saw someone else doing it, it would freak you out. And the disciples were scared, not because of the ocean. Roll oceans. No, not because of the, the waves, but because this man was walking at them. Another gospel writer calls it an apparition. They thought it was a ghost. And then he says this in verse 20. And if you underline in your Bibles or you have our Bible, underline this. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. It is very similar. If you read it, it looks like I am, which Jesus uses that term consistently to quote his father in the Old Testament. But it's not the same theological speech as the many of the I am statements are. It is I. Do not be afraid. If I'm a disciple or if I'm on this boat at this time, I'm freaked out. I think he's a ghost. 
But how is this possible? How is Jesus doing this? It's simple. Because Jesus is not bound by the same natural laws that you and I are bound by because he is not natural. He is supernatural. Well, duh. Yeah, but a lot of us miss that. And we think miracles don't happen anymore. We don't. We don't think God intervenes the way he once did. But may I just tell you that God still performs miracles today. And some of you are like, wait, 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 where are we going with this? Stay with me. I believe God intervenes. I'm not sure if he intervenes in the natural order of gravity and physics like he did in this text. But nothing, do you hear me? Nothing is more supernatural than life change. Nothing. Nothing is more of a miracle than having someone go from death to life to maturity. Nothing is more dramatic than a person who is going in one direction, having God intervene in their lives, and now they're headed in a completely different direction with new motivations because God has given them a new heart. Nothing. And yet, let's just be real. A lot of us want to focus our attention on extra-biblical miracles. Come on. That's what a lot of us do. We're looking for Jesus and grilled cheese sandwiches. We're looking for new revelations. We're looking for a new word from God when he gave us his word completely. But we don't want to trust him at what he said. We think it's too simple. And yet, all scripture, according to Paul writing to Timothy, says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, oh, we like that one, correcting and training in righteousness. And it is useful, but it's not only useful, I'm here to tell you that the word of God is necessary and required for spiritual life change. But like I've shown you before, we don't do this with scripture. We put it into practice. So don't look for miracles that you don't find in scripture. Look to the miracle that was the point. Luke, the gospel writer, writes it this way in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Nothing is more supernatural than someone going from death to life to maturity. You may be lost today. You may have been dragged here today. And yet I would trust that God can be seeking you out. He can be coming to you. He can be drawing you. He can be wooing you to himself. Woo means to win others over. He can be wooing you to himself, not because he needs you, church, but because you need him. So we hear these parables of the, the prodigal son, which really was two lost sons, but there was also the lost sheep and the lost coin that was found in Luke 15. And at the end of one of the parables, it says this, in the same way, I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who attends a church service. Oh, crap, doesn't say that. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of, over, of God over one sinner who repents, who changes direction. But I gotta ask this question, which I ask you guys a lot. Have you repented? Or has that become white noise to you? 
Will you stand before the Father one day and say, but didn't I attend church consistently? Wasn't I a part of a ministry outside of the church? Didn't I give not just to my church, but I gave to a missionary? Man, I'm super sanctified. And the Lord will say to you, according to Matthew 7, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evil doer of lawlessness. Ouch. See, our justification only comes through Christ Jesus, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So have you repented? Have you submitted your will and turned to God's will? Because we are absolutely saved by grace, which means you, you get what you don't deserve. Married men, that's like your wives. That's grace right there. Because we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's how our salvation takes place. But faith is demonstrated by a repentant heart. I've got four kids, and Lorelai, who many of you saw a few months back, I got to baptize Lorelai with her mom. Aaron and I baptized Lorelai in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And she was not saved in that moment. Let me just bother some of you. She was saved before the foundation of the earth was created. What? But when she repented, as her and I talked in a Pete's Coffee, what, what? And we talked about Jesus, and I asked her how she saw Jesus, and she saw Jesus as the one who did for her what she could not do for herself. And she was sorry that she had sinned against God. I saw repentance in my daughter's heart. And I had the great blessing of being able to watch her in front of many of you demonstrate that repentant heart by being baptized. But it's through faith that any of us are saved. That God, and this may bother some of us, but come at me, bro, Ephesians 2, God gives us the faith. What? Yeah, he does. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. I wonder if maybe Jesus has said this to you today or ever. It is I, don't be afraid. And our response personally is to be like Taylor Swift and shake it off, right? Six, seven, eight of you, fantastic. <laughs> to shake it, Steph, you heard it first. To, to attempt to explain away God's intervention in our lives. Have we tried to shake off God intervening? And yet maybe God's drawing us. And one of the ways that I know as he draws us and we repent because faith has been given to us is that we start to have the eyes to see how beautiful he is. And when you do, you do not need to be afraid, church, because you know that Jesus isn't just alive, but he's with you. In fact, he gave you his spirit to reside in you. So that's some pretty good news. So let me go optimist, prime, pessimist. What if you're afraid? What if the idea of Jesus coming back scares you? Like we come here and we worship and we open the word of God and we laugh a little and we cry a little and we spend time being challenged by what God has to say, but are you expectant and eager for Jesus to come back? Or do you have plans? Jesus, hold off a bit. There's some stuff I want to get accomplished first. That proves you don't understand him. And so the only reason that one would be afraid 
is because the goodness that God gives his children is not something you've received. The faith that God gives his children is something you have not received. It's because you haven't received his imputed gift of righteousness. That's the only reason any of us could be afraid of the idea of Jesus coming back. Because we haven't submitted to Jesus' power. We haven't received his justification that's only done by him, through him, for him, to make much of him, and then he uses us. We haven't received the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit who resides in us, who's not an it, but is a he. Keep listening, though. Verse 21. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. Oh, this is beautiful. And immediately... The boat reached the shore where they were heading. It is I, do not be afraid. They realize who he is and they receive him into the boat. Isn't this a somewhat beautiful example of our salvation story? We're afraid of him. He comes to us in a way we wouldn't expect or understand. And all of a sudden he gives us the eyes to see him and we receive him into our place of refuge. But he doesn't want to come in and have a makeover. He wants to come in and have a takeover, which will completely change you from the inside out. Roll song. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They were willing to receive him, to receive him into the boat. One of the things I love about Scripture is nothing is wasted. So here's the question. Do you see the second miracle in this passage? If you went to seminary, you're not allowed to raise your hand. If you were in first service, you're not allowed to raise your hand. So does anyone see the miracle in this passage of this verse that I just read? Arliss. Immediately. This word is beautiful, and most of us missed it. I've missed it plenty of times. Immediately. Nothing is wasted. He's talking about they were in the middle of the lake, three to four miles but this lake is about seven miles long. And immediately they ended up where they were supposed to be. Wow. This is intense. But this chapter is leading to the point that Jesus, or this part of this chapter is leading to the point that Jesus is the bread of life. And some are very interested in having the food that God will give that will just fulfill them physically, not spiritually. But what we're going to see over the next many passages as we read them and preach them is that some are faking it. Can you believe it? (laughs) Derp. (laughs) Some are in it for the wrong reasons. And yet some are faithful, which God makes clear over an extended period of time. Corey, you're going to hear more about that on Tuesday night. So Jesus walks on water. I asked someone, hey, do you, see the, do you see the other miracle? And then I read this passage, and he said uh, that Jesus has 12 friends in his 30s. <laughs> if you're not laughing, never mind. <laughs> but the word immediately, it is there for a reason. Why do you think Jesus would perform this miracle? Why do you, I think, that these words are actually a miracle? You know why? Because of hermeneutics. Because I've looked into the passage. I've looked at what John's trying to emphasize 
Why would he be so specific about how long the lake is? That kind of feels like a throwaway verse, but he wanted to make known that Jesus not only performs miracles that he can do, but he has control over crowds of other people as well. This makes me think of why he may be drawing you. Maybe it's not just because he wants to perform a miracle in your life to take you from death to life, to maturity, but maybe, just maybe, the miracle isn't just you, but it's the people that you will be used for to reach with the message of the kingdom of God. I know the ending. I read ahead. It's pretty good, and I know this. I know how it plays out, that the king is on the throne reigning forever and ever, and I am with him. Who's with me? Verse 22. The next day doesn't really talk a lot about their sleep or bathroom habits or anything like that. Just the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there. Huh. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. Huh. But they had gone away alone. John is making clear that Jesus did not enter the lake to get to the disciples by some natural course of action, like taking another boat or getting a jet ski. That's not how he caught up to the disciples. So let me just ask you, what's your natural excuse that you're attempting to explain away God intervening in your life? What natural excuse are you trying to come up with to say, well, no, 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 that wasn't God, that was this? Verse 23. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. It's interesting that John goes back to the giving thanks part. Verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. This crowd is serious about getting to Jesus. This crowd is serious about finding him. But the why over the past chapter or so has started to change. We're not really sure. Because for some, they just want to see him perform miracles. For some, they want to see him do some pretty amazing things. But for some, they wanted their, to have some physical feel, fill of bread or have the, the things that they've needed taken care of. And some wanted to make him a political king so they could experience what it would be like to have someone that was on their side. But what we're going to see over the next many passages, church, as we read it, as we study it, as we get challenged by it, is that there were a ton of people trying to get to Jesus, follow Jesus, spend time with Jesus, but they weren't ready for what Jesus came to do. So I got a quick question for you. I bet you, you guys are going to get this quick. First service people, you don't get to say this. What was left out of the Gospel of John that isn't left out in another Gospel writing? We just read this. What what was left out? Anybody? Peter! Very good, Ruth. Peter! Now, when I ask people who walked on water, a lot of people will say Peter. They forget Jesus. And they'll be like, yeah, Peter walked on water. It's like, not really, not for very long. Right? John doesn't even bring up the loud mouth, Peter. (laughs) But if you guys remember the story, it's actually in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew writes and talks about Peter, and Jesus is coming out onto the water. They're all freaked out. 
And Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, call me out onto the water. I love Peter. Oh man, I would not want to hang out with Peter though. I like him from, you know, this vantage point. And Peter decides, you know what, Lord, if you can do it, if it's really you, you have the power to have me do that too. And so Peter gets out and he steps under the water. This kind of conjecture, but then pretty quickly he falls in. And then he freaks out. He's like, Jesus, save me. (laughs) That's kind of embarrassing. Why wouldn't Mark write? Oh, because Mark didn't write about that either because Mark was following Peter and Peter decided to leave that out. You guys notice that? But Matthew writes about this. It's a little embarrassing, but it's also kind of cool. Peter got to walk on water. Jesus changed the physics of the world so Peter could do this. Peter is only the second person in history to walk on water, and Peter seemed to show some faith by trusting that Jesus had the power to make him walk on water too. But why does John exclude this part of the story? Because Peter is not the point. John is not here to emphasize Peter's faith or his stupidity. And let me just say this. You're not Peter either. You are not the point. John is here to emphasize that Jesus is the point and he's the only son of God. So let me just ask you. As you sit here, as you've been sitting for close to 40 minutes, as you've been hearing the word of God be taught, I want you to think about this for a moment. How do you tell the narrative of your life? When you share the story of your life, how do you tell it to people? Are you the hero in your own story? Or has Jesus Christ intervened? And not just made you a better person, church, Change your heart. Made you a new creation, and does he get all the glory and the praise? When you think or tell your story, who do you emphasize? When you think of your life, is God's intervention more important than your accolades? COV, we are in an exciting time as a church. Not because of anything we've done. Not because we are cool. We're totally not. But because we emphasize Jesus. And we exalt Jesus. And you can be sure that any blessing that comes upon this church is not because we tried to will it, but because we made much of Jesus and God decided to bless that. We're not trying to be a church that makes it about a show. We're not trying to be more effective than Jesus. We want to just disciple people. We want to see people grow, and we believe discipleship is the conduit of that. And as we trust, as we obey his word, not just on a Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as we obey his word, we get the opportunity to grow more, to look like Jesus, not because we have more information, and not even because we do more but because we put into practice the things that God has asked us to do.